G'day and welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. It's been a bit of a struggle to get this one out, but here it is at last. It looks like I've just managed to get it out in the same year as the Oppenheimer movie was released. I've not yet seen that one myself, but I understand it was a great movie, which stuck pretty closely to the real story. The beginning of the Atomic Age has marked a rather scary escalation in our ability to self-destruct, but once the atomic technology genie was out of the bottle, it was clear that nothing would ever be the same, and no clock could be turned back to return us to a pre-nuclear age. Of course, as soon as the Americans had mastered the atomic bomb, so other countries also felt the need to keep up and arm with these new weapons. Australia was not in a position to do so itself, but it took a very supportive and enthusiastic role in helping the British get there. So today, we're going to look at the dawn of the Atomic Age in Australia. I received an email from a listener, following the release of the Mariah Island episode, advising me that I was not leaving enough gaps between sentences. I was running all the paragraphs into each other and making it unlistenable. And I think this is a fair criticism. I do edit out the many gaps in my recordings, as I'm always mindful of how long my episodes often run for. However, they were right in pointing it out. It's exhausting to listen to something that just runs on, without appropriate breathers in the content. So, rather than try and compress the time that way, I may now just break up long episodes into two and release them very close together. That way, if you have time, you can listen on to the second one, almost straight away, and the listening should be a little more comfortable. So thanks for that feedback. Some of you might also note that I hardly use the old Twitter platform anymore, largely abandoning it to the Bitcoin purveyors and bullies. I have instead signed up with Mastodon, Threads and Blue Sky if you use any of those platforms and want to follow me there. I'm still present on Facebook and Instagram, though never highly active on any of them really. I just, well, just the occasional post. I mean, who's got the time? But if you are wanting to get onto Blue Sky yourself, but are still awaiting an invitation, I do have a few codes to share. Please contact me via email and I'll be happy to share those with you. Email to ozhistpod at gmail.com Just before we get stuck in, I'd like to thank David McD, Christine E and Emily C who sent through some support for the show since the last episode, and of course Michelle G, who continues to send a monthly contribution. Much appreciated, especially as I'm less reliable in my output than previously. Thanks for the continuing support, and thanks to those also who left lovely reviews for me. So I'm assuming that most people will have heard of Oppenheimer, knowing he was pivotal in the success of the Manhattan Project, the American project which produced and successfully tested the world's first atomic bomb on July 16, 1945, at the Trinity Test Site in New Mexico. That bomb was nicknamed The Gadget, and marked the beginning of the nuclear age. What fewer people know is that the British had begun their own atomic bomb building project, codenamed Tube Alloys, six weeks prior to the commencement of the Manhattan Project. 
So it's the Brits who can claim, for those first few weeks at least, to be the West's nuclear trailblazers. (laughs) When the physics department at the mighty Birmingham University in the UK, headed by Australia's Mark Oliphant, by the way, demonstrated that a uranium-powered atom bomb was theoretically possible in a paper written by Jewish refugees Otto Frisch and Rudolf Perls in 1940, it led to Churchill establishing a British atomic bomb development program on August 30, 1941. Initially, the Americans offered to work with the British in a joint project, but when that offer was not enthusiastically accepted by Britain, with no time to waste, each country began their own programs independently, and the American Manhattan Project was instigated then too. It was a poor decision on Churchill's part, perhaps, because while they may have had their own British brainiacs on hand to work out the science, in the middle of a war and a war zone, Britain was not able to throw the money and manpower at such a mission, and they soon stalled while the Americans raced ahead. Churchill soon afterwards tried to revive the offer of a partnership, but the Manhattan Project was by then up and running, independently. British scientists, physicists, engineers and so on were later seconded and graciously allowed to contribute their expertise to the Manhattan Project, but it was no longer an equal joint venture and they remained ever the bridesmaids. Indeed, while the Americans were the primary driving force, the Manhattan Project benefited from contributions from many scientists who had fled fascist regimes in Europe and from the substantial contributions of scientists and engineers from the United Kingdom and Canada, for example. So it was really an international effort. Following that successful test of the gadget, only months later, two more atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, leading to Japan's surrender and bringing an end to World War II. However, with the post-war recovery focus and the changing geopolitical landscape, the United States and the Soviet Union emerged as the two world superpowers, and the ideological differences between them led to the onset of the Cold War. And so the nuclear arms race really kicked off. The US was the sole possessor of atomic weapons for the brief period after the war, giving them a strategic advantage. And keen to maintain that advantage, they became increasingly concerned about the security of nuclear information and technology for civilian and military uses. They developed a policy of nuclear non-proliferation advocating for the prevention of the spread of nuclear weapons to other countries, and they enacted the McMahon Act, also known as the Atomic Energy Act of 1946, to control and regulate the dissemination of nuclear information. This act restricted the sharing of atomic energy information with other countries, including the previously close allies like the UK. While collaboration on certain aspects continued, the level of sharing was significantly reduced, compared to the wartime cooperation during the Manhattan Project. Certainly the fear of potential leaks and espionage was another reason for their more restrictive approach to sharing sensitive information. And this fear was not without foundation. One notable case that contributed to these concerns was the detection of Klaus Fuchs, a German-born physicist and member of the British delegation to the Manhattan Project, who was later outed as a spy. Working on the British Atomic Bomb Project, and later as part of the Manhattan Project team, he had begun passing classified information to the Soviet Union in 1943. 
At that time, with Germany still in the war, the Soviet Union was officially an ally of the United States and the United Kingdom, but tensions were already rising and it was clear that the Soviets might become a problem. Fuchs continued to pass on classified information, including details about the design of the American atomic bomb, and he was not uncovered and arrested by the British until 1949. And we learned later, of course, that the British intelligence agencies leaked like a sieve, being riddled with spies working for the Soviets. So the anxiety of the Americans had been well-placed. Collaboration had ceased in August of 1946, after the Atomic Energy Act was passed. The British were afterwards on their own if they wished to continue nuclear development. And they did. They had the expertise, but very limited money and resources to put to the project in post-war Britain. But with the Soviets now also in the race to arm, they felt it was imperative to build and test their own weapons within ten years to act as a deterrent to the Soviet aggression. First, they needed nuclear power plants that could manufacture the plutonium required, which they began building immediately. But without the desired American blueprints, they would need to devise, build and test the complicated atomic weapons from scratch to ensure that they would work as desired. And it was the bomb testing phase that drew them to Australia in the early 1950s. The first of the tests, known as Operation Hurricane, took place in October of 1952 on the Montebello Islands off the northwest coast of Australia. Subsequent tests, including those at Emu Field and Maralinga on the Australian mainland, continued over the years following. But for today's episode, we will focus mainly on the first of those tests undertaken at the Montebello Islands. There are now a number of resources available after all these years, but I will be getting a good deal of today's material from the research that Paul Grace did in his book Operation Hurricane, the story of Britain's first atomic test in Australia and the legacy that remains. As always, full details of the references used will be on the episode webpage at the australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. The Americans had undertaken their atomic testing in their own country and in other places, such as the Pacific. They had dropped them from purpose-built towers and planes, detonated them in deserts, underwater and underground. But one horrific scenario that bothered the British needed more thorough testing. Their fear was that a merchant ship controlled by the Soviets might smuggle an atomic weapon right into one of the many international British ports. They wanted to assess the effects of an atomic explosion in a port or harbour, produced by the firing of a device mounted below the waterline in the hold of a ship. They needed to know how such an explosion might affect the surrounding environments, while testing the efficacy of their newly built weapons. But they needed to find an appropriate site. Obviously, islands surrounding Britain were ruled out, the area being geographically limited and pretty highly populated. They approached the Americans for use of one of their sites, but all they got was Refusal may offend, apparently, so the US simply stalled and hummed and hard and said nothing, and time was ticking on for the British. They examined atolls in the Pacific and sites around Commonwealth Canada and Australia, but after much consideration, the Montebello Islands off our northwest coast seemed to meet most of the criteria. In September of 1950, the British Prime Minister, Clement Attlee, sent a classified letter to the Australian Prime Minister, Robert Menzies, 
advising that they were looking for a suitable site for testing their atomic weapon, currently in production, and that the Americans had so far not replied to a request to use their sites. The British had identified a suitable alternative site, the Montebello Islands, a low-lying, barren, uninhabited group of islands about 120 kilometres off the northwestern coast of Australia. By agreement, the Australians would be asked to substantially support the operation, but, you know, being such a super top-secret British business, such support would not extend to any area requiring knowledge or function of the weapons. The Australian government willingly accepted the British view that, by the terms of its agreement with the US, the UK was prevented from providing information on or allowing Australian participation in the technical aspects of the tests. We could do the lackey work, but not benefit from any of the crucial nuclear information gained. Numerous RAAF, RAN and Army units might happily provide Australian equipment and men for duty to support the British, providing transport, construction, engineering, logistical and any other support requested, and all personnel involved would be bound by the Secrets Act, and the whole project should remain hush-hush as far as possible. Would Menzies be open to hosting such a test, and would he consent to a survey, codenamed Epicure, being carried out there post-haste to confirm its suitability? All arrangements would need to remain top secret, old boy. Menzies immediately agreed to the requested reconnaissance, and a photographic survey of the Montebellos was undertaken for the British by the Royal Australian Air Force in October of 1950. The Montebello Islands consist of a group of more than 170 limestone islands located 20 kilometres north of Barrow Island and 120 kilometres north northwest of Dampier on the mainland Pilbara coast of northwestern Australia. During the last ice age, when the water levels were much lower, they would have formed the outermost landmass of a once extensive peninsula up to around 30,000 years ago, becoming gradually cut off from the mainland as the Ice Age receded, first forming a larger offshore island connected with Barrow and separated from the mainland by a then 8 kilometre or so wide Marianne Passage before further global warming and rising sea levels around 13,000 years ago completely submerged the area, leaving the Montebellos isolated a long way offshore as we see them today. The archaeological record indicates that Aboriginal occupation there was sparse and probably episodic, but it showed that fauna was abundant between 30,000 to 10,000 years ago. The hard, rock-stone artefacts discovered appear to have been brought in some distance from the now mainland areas. Aboriginal use over the most recent 10,000 years seems very unlikely, given the vast distance water travel required. The earliest known European contact with the islands occurred in 1622. Now recorded as Australia's first shipwreck site, the English ship Trial was wrecked on uncharted submerged rocks about 32 kilometres northwest of the outer edge of the Montebello Islands. On her maiden voyage, she was carrying silver for trade in the East Indies. One wreck survivor recorded, quote, "...being 128 souls left to God's mercy." whereof 36 were saved, unquote. The captain and a few others had left almost immediately in the captain's skiff, with a suspicion that they may have taken some of the silver. The other 36 souls mentioned made their way in a longboat to one of the larger islands, where they spent seven days before they set out for Java. 
An attractive salvage target owing to the prospect of silver on board, the trial wreck was located in 1969, and there's a rather sorry story related to that, including illegal salvage and the use of explosives damaging the wreck, which you can look up if you're interested. Trial is usually spelt T-R-Y-A-L-L. And some recovered artefacts are now held in the Western Australian Maritime Museum. The Montebello Islands were given their current name by the French navigator Nicolas Bourdin in 1801 in honour of the war hero French Duke of Montebello, and they have been used in various capacities from the late 19th century onwards, including pearling, turtle farming and aquaculture, up until the nuclear tests mid-20th century. The Beagle, with Charles Darwin aboard, also explored the Montebellos and, you know, shot stuff there in 1840. It was the pearlers who fished the waters and camped on the islands who are said to have been responsible for the introduction of cats and the black rats, who then contributed to the extinction of numerous bird colonies and the island's golden bandicoot and speckled hare wallabies. By the 1950s, Australia was, of course, no longer a colony of Britain, but an independent country, so one might think there would have been a level of concern about our safety and the ethics of the atomic testing program and any number of other environmental concerns to be carefully considered before making a decision on whether we should make our land and service personnel available for atomic testing. But no, Robert Menzies was an absolute Anglophile, and could not wait to give his almost entirely unreserved agreement for the British to do, well, pretty much whatever they pleased. Even with the very limited information that had been provided by the British, Menzies appeared thrilled with the whole suggestion, even though we would not directly share in or benefit from any of the nuclear science and data gathered. Menzies assured the British that anything required would, quote, of course be made available, unquote. Grace reminds us that, given the political climate, things may not have been any different had any other Prime Minister been in power. After all, Chifley had established the Woomera Rocket Range in 1946 as an Anglo-Australian joint project and had initiated our own atomic program, which led to the commissioning of the Lucas Heights Reactor in New South Wales. Such developments may have been inevitable given the times. When Attlee had decided that his country should go it alone, developing their nuclear weapons, his decision was made with the utmost secrecy, and was not revealed to his cabinet. And when Attlee approached Menzies about hosting the tests in Australia, the latter likewise agreed to the operation without referring the matter to his Australian cabinet. Menzies appears only to have met with his acting Minister of Defence and Defence Secretary, so it's not clear how much further information, consultation or consideration he needed. As Grace put it, quote, If Britain was in the Cold War against the Soviets, so was Australia. As loyal subjects, Australians were duty-bound to pitch in, unquote. Grace noted, from the Navy's point of view, the Montebellos were perfect. One opinion from the Times stating, quote, they are isolated, uninhabited, and rarely visited. The nearest mainland island was Onslow, a small port of 85 miles south, which, crucially, was upwind of the proposed test site. The surrounding area was sparsely populated, so if anything went wrong, only a handful of natives and colonials would be affected. Unquote. <laughs> Such an attitude was carried throughout the whole program and to my mind doesn't indicate the expected level of care and consideration one's government should have shown on our behalf. 
I am shocked, shocked, I say. By January 1951, the British were convinced that the Montebello Islands should be the preferred site for the first atomic test, but for climatic reasons, in particular because of the prevailing winds, the tests could only be conducted in the month of October. Attlee informed Menzies in March of 1951 and sought his formal agreement then for an atomic weapons test to be carried out in October 1952. Menzies had to delay his formal agreement, as elections were to be held in May. But with the Menzies government returned, further surveys began in July and August of 1951 using HMAS Warrego. McClellan noted in his 1985 Royal Commission findings, quote, The decision was taken without the benefit of any scientific knowledge of the hazards that would be involved, unquote. Hmm, no matter, eh? It's all for king and country. The operation was codenamed Hurricane. Australian military personnel involved on the reconnaissance would have been aware that the areas were being surveyed for suitability as a military testing site. They were encouraged to believe it might become an extension of the Woomera testing range, but not that such testing would be of nuclear devices, at least not in the early days. The public knew nothing about it until the media scoops later in 1952. The Woomera Rocket Range, now formerly known as the RAAF Woomera Range Complex, is now a military and civilian test range, though in the early days it was solely under military operation as a defence research and long-range weapons testing site. Initially, the Anglo-Australian Joint Venture, it was conceived as a testing area for weapons designed to counter the V-1 and V-2 rockets that were launched into Britain during World War II. Instigated under Chifley in 1946, as mentioned earlier, the joint project operated on into the 1970s. The complex participated in the US Mercury and Gemini space programs and continues being used for testing of drone aircraft and rocketry right up until recent times. It remains the largest testing area in the world, with the Woomera prohibited area covering a landmass of 122,188 square kilometres. That's about 47,177 square miles, reaching across the western central parts of the South Australian state. Covering almost a quarter of South Australia's landmass, it roughly equates to the size of North Korea, according to Wiki. <laughs> More recently, some areas within the no-go zone have been opened for up for mining. <laughs> so, <laughs> watch your heads, boys. If you recall, we spoke briefly about some outback stations who found themselves situated within that newly gazetted Woomera prohibited area after its establishment in the episode that we did on the dingo fences. Some had very funny stories to tell about witnessing rocket tests. <laughs> Once the on-site surveys were complete, preparations for Operation Hurricane began in earnest. Britain hoped that Australia, quote, would be willing to help with logistical support and that we can settle later the details of finance and machinery, unquote. However, Menzies was so excited to be picked for the team that he volunteered to cover the Australian costs as our contribution to the project. A project, remember, that we would not be getting the data from. Quote, his compliance stunned even the Brits, unquote. Menzies was reminded by Attlee that, Quote, the effect of exploding an atomic weapon on the Montebello Islands will be to contaminate with radioactivity the Northeast Group, and this contamination may spread to other islands. 
the area is not likely to be entirely free from contamination for about three years. And we would hope for continuing Australian help in investigating the decay of contamination. During this time, the area will be unsafe for human occupation or even visits by pearl fishermen who, we understand, at present go there from time to time, and suitable measures will need to be taken to keep them away, unquote. So there was some acknowledgement of the nuclear contamination expected, though understated, I would think, suggesting all will be well in three short years. But it didn't seem to worry Menzies anyway. Grace wonders where the three-year time frame came from, though I guess all things nuclear were new to many at that time. Still, you would think that those from the physics department would understand nuclear decay, as indeed they did, and it does appear to simply have been a number pulled out of the air. Being charitable, I think Grace wonders if Attlee, perhaps unintentionally, misquoted the real advice. It'll be no surprise to you to discover that areas of the Montebellos are still very radioactively hot, and that more than 70 years later, people are advised not to disturb any soil or remove any items, or stay in the area for more than an hour, before risking unacceptable levels of exposure. Anyway, phase one of the operation would see the Royal Engineers sent to coordinate the personnel, equipment and materials gathered to build the infrastructure required on the islands and lagoons. There would be further hydrological surveys and detailed meteorological recordings, particularly through August to October. Moorings and marker buoys were laid and roads and landings were constructed on several larger islands, along with the construction of bunkers and equipment rooms, communications and stores, and so on. The plan was to detonate the bomb within the hull of a moored ship, and multiple sites were considered for the measuring devices that would be required all around. Various sites on the island surrounding the proposed Ground Zero site were again surveyed and geological samples were taken and consideration was given to the best options for photographic capture of the explosion, along with the placement of other recording and measurement devices. Angles, heights and distances of the islands were all recorded, with the biggest installations planned for the islands of Hermite, Trimawil, Alpha and Northwest. Transit channels were marked out for the various draft depth vessels expected to be coming and going. Drinking water for the vast number of personnel now in the archipelago was always a challenge and had to be addressed by desalinating the surrounding seawater. Not an ideal solution for the men having to drink it, apparently. Weather conditions were often difficult, causing delays when the wind was up, and even for those working on land it was often very exposed and windy and hot. The heat and humidity was of particular discomfort to the British personnel, unfamiliar with Australian conditions. But with the shark-infested waters, swimming was not an option for relief, though they did create some engineered safe spaces over time by installing steel scaffolding and heavy wire mesh shark nets across the mouth of two shallow tidal bays. Some materials were shipped up from Fremantle, but most cargo was shipped out from Onslow, where the jetty had to accommodate the local 10-metre tidal range, often adding more difficulty to the loading and unloading processes. Following Attlee's election loss to Churchill in October, Churchill was delighted to discover the state of the secret program, and he committed it to continuing, so it was full steam ahead on the Montebellos, they were to work through the steamy wet season, though avoiding cyclones would be desirable. 
By January of 1952, Menzies was finally turning his mind to the dangers involved, and he requested advice from the British on the, quote, possible after-effects of this project on the Australian mainland and its inhabitants, unquote. He noted that only their experts could calculate the risks, given their months of meteorological and other surveys of conditions around the islands, and an authoritative statement would be required from the British that would assure the Australian public the effects would be innocuous. Assurances were given to Menzies that, quote, the explosion would take place only when conditions are such that there will be no danger from radioactivity to the health of animals or people on the mainland of Australia, unquote. But no hard data was shared with the Australian government to allow them to make their own assessments. Despite the risk of a larger-than-expected explosion occurring, or an unexpected change in wind direction or speed, for example, the program proceeded on what Grace called, quote, a gentleman's agreement, unquote, and on the assumption that the word of our British friends was good enough, old bean. In February of 1952, our monarch died and Queen Elizabeth II came to the throne. Big news, and it was around this time that the British and the Australian governments made brief statements quietly announcing the intention of testing, by detonation, a British-built atomic bomb in Australia. The assurances provided by the British were passed on to the public, though for now the site was not announced. Grace suggested reactions were more along the patriotic pride scale than any kind of alarm, though speculation began immediately about where the test might take place. Most money would again have been on the likelihood of the Woomera rocket range being used, and again, both governments were happy not to correct that impression. The recently formed ASIO, that's the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, was in charge of civilian security, particularly around Onslow and Fremantle, where the many vessels destined for the Montebellos loaded up and departed, a big fear being imagined trouble from the communist-leaning waterside workers on the docks. Apart from a few troublesome reporters, they had very little to worry about in the end. It was an unintended indiscretion by a sailor, whinging about being sent to, quote, some bloody place called the Montebellos, unquote, that gave a journalist for the West Australian newspaper the final puzzle piece about where the tests would likely be occurring. When the story broke in April of 1952, they certainly appeared to have gathered all the really quite unmissable clues, including the movement of Royal Navy and Royal Australian Navy personnel, vessels and equipment, the appearance of vast numbers of numbers of engineers and technicians from both services, and the fact that the government was preparing to gazette a substantial exclusion zone around the Montebellos and the nearby areas, quote, for the testing of war material, unquote. So the cat was pretty much out of the bag then. With some intrepid journalists making their way out to the islands just the day before the prohibited area legislation made it illegal to do so, on pain of up to seven years' imprisonment, they witnessed the massive infrastructure building going on there and published their scoops. Both governments were then forced to confirm that the tests would be carried out on the Montebello Islands. They also announced that no press would be allowed to witness the explosions. No details about the operation were given and most people assumed that a bomber flying out of Woomera would drop the atomic device over the Montebellos or that they would be fired there in a rocket. The authorities were happy again to leave the people to speculate, though Grace recorded one correspondent to the Daily News got pretty close to the actual plan, writing, 
Quote, it seems a clear indication that the atomic tests are going to have plenty to do with the water. Otherwise, why would the expedition ships be carrying out so many landing barges? Maybe we can expect underwater atomic tests similar to those conducted by the Americans. Oh, so close, mate. <laughs> In the meantime, large numbers of servicemen had been shipped out to the Montebellos and construction was proceeding at a stunning clip. Grace recorded that in six weeks they had bulldozed and graded 6.5 miles of tracks and landings across the four main islands, transforming the area into a giant construction zone and laying 300 tonnes of pierced steel planking for access. In the following months, nine more miles of road were added and, quote, 80 concrete instrumentation platforms, five Anderson shelters, that's the bomb shelters constructed from corrugated iron and reinforced with sandbags, nine jetties, five concrete bunkers, four scaffolding towers and a permanent command centre was constructed on Hermite, unquote. And 150 miles of undersea cabling was laid to link all the remote instrumentation sites. They were certainly working at a frantic pace and making excellent progress. In Australia, when the speculation began of Woomera being the chosen site began, there was some apprehension voiced by the Secretary of the Council for Aboriginal Rights concerning the safety of populations of Aboriginal peoples still living somewhat nomadic traditional lifestyles in that area. Quote, the danger to human life from an explosion or contact with contaminated materials is obvious, unquote. But very few people acknowledged that concern. The authorities simply responded unconvincingly that no harm would be done. While on this occasion, for the test on the Montebellos, the risk was expected to be very low, the Secretary's safety concerns were in fact played out in all their horror after the mainland tests which would occur in the future. And there's a couple of fairly new books about what went on at Maralinga and Emu Fields by Elizabeth Tynan. I've, I've put that in the reference list, I'm sure. The British had fleetingly addressed the possibility of some human inhabitants that might be on the mainland areas closest to the offshore Montebellos, noting that they, quote, had a population of 71 people, excluding full-blooded Aboriginal, for whom no statistics are available, unquote. At that time, Aboriginal people were excluded from being counted in the Commonwealth Census. So, well, you know, let's just pretend there's no issue then. Grace notes that the Western Australia's Department of Native Affairs estimated there may have been around 4,500 First Australians living in that region at the time, though, so it's quite a disgraceful oversight. Other people also expressed their concern about the loss of wildlife around the blast zone and nearby islands. One member of the Royal Zoological Society stated, quote, It'll be very regrettable if those notable birds and animals are blasted out of existence. Unquote. Churchill's derisive response to such concerns expressed in his own parliament was to say that quote, every effort will be made to inconvenience them as little as possible. Unquote. None of that was to matter anyway. The device had to be tested to make the British safe. In June, the Campania, carrying many of the scientific contingent required, departed England for the Montebellos, meeting the Plym en route, which was carrying the as-yet unarmed nuclear weapon and had already departed. The radioactive core was to be flown out separately. Both sailed the long way round the Cape of Good Hope, avoiding the politically tense Suez Canal region, arriving at the archipelago in early August. Phase two of the operation had begun. 
With the British Atomic Project team now on site, they began setting up their devices, testing the equipment and fitting out their command centre at H1, on a hilltop at the southern end of Hermite Island, around six miles from the chosen Ground Zero site in the lagoon. H1 would be the only building to remain occupied on the island during the explosion. Grace records it housing, quote, dark rooms, offices, laboratories full of apparatus, and the all-important control room where the master control desk was located, unquote. The detonation would require a complicated 24-hour countdown initiating the firing sequence, and one Ewan Maddock, the assistant director of the telemetry and communications department, would be responsible for pressing that button and activating the final detonation. Overlooking the target site were any number of recording devices, including a high-speed camera developed specifically for this purpose, able to take 100,000 frames per second and used for the first time at the Montebellos. I'll bet there were some nervous camera creators with fingers crossed that it all worked as expected. You wouldn't want to miss the momentous explosion after all those years preparing. Of course, there were the more conventional high-speed cameras dotted around too, taking 8,000 frames per second, and any number of other recording and monitoring devices. Grace noted they specifically required pictures of, quote, the development of the fireball, the water column, the mushroom cloud, and other blast effects, unquote, to give them appropriate data to analyse afterwards. The plim, the sacrificial ship, which would hold the weapon just below the waterline, had been securely moored in 12 metres of water in the middle of Bunsen Channel and was wired up for detonation when the time came. It was also bristling with recording equipment, of course, which would record and send data from on board right up until one millionth of a second before the ship was sent to oblivion. As October approached, personnel were gradually being removed from the islands, though a small skeleton crew would remain in safely distant observation bunkers to detonate and to monitor the explosion. Many others were still required right up until the last day and would be removed to the RAN ships being moored at a safe distance from the blast. I have put a map marking where the various vessels were moored on the day of the website if you're interested. And so the countdown to D-Day began. The Radioactivity Measurement Division had laid their monitoring devices all over the islands, along with other materials which were to be left in the various measurement sites to be exposed to the blast and then inspected and measured for damage and radiation levels afterwards. Things like plane components, scale models of parts of ships, a good deal of foodstuffs, seedlings and seeds, all to be measured for radiation post-explosion, and some to be used afterwards for testing decontamination procedures. Local birds and fish would be caught around the islands afterwards too to help measure radiological impact of the bomb. Rehearsals were conducted in September, indicating everything was in readiness, and when the meteorological conditions were deemed to be satisfactory on October 2nd, the countdown process was started with the detonation to occur the following day. Weather was a particularly tricky thing for the team to pass. Grace reminds us the British had assured the Australians that no fallout would reach the mainland, but the atomic cloud would likely climb to 25,000 feet, and at that height the wind could be trending in entirely different directions, across different altitudes. The meteorologists might not be able to predict with any certainty just which direction might be on the cards in any given day or time. 
and their timing of the conditions had to match the high tide at the archipelago on a day with calm seas for the test to be viable, so there was much to consider. But October 3rd looked good as far as all things could be known. Grace reports the weapon being installed and armed over a two-hour period in the early hours of D-Day, noting, quote, When it was done, the device looked like something out of War of the Worlds, a gleaming aluminium ball constructed from geometric shapes, five feet in diameter, suspended about two feet above the deck, with 128 cables springing from equidistant points around the surface and snaking around the deck and the weapon room, unquote. With all personnel removed from the plim, and only skeleton teams left to detonate and monitor the weapon and equipment, all the ships were withdrawn to a safe distance. After a final meteorological check, the final go order was confirmed at 8.45 on October 3rd. By 9.15, as the final countdown began, the distant ships were battened down, Watches were all synchronised, and the men on the remote islands and who remained on the ships, authorised to watch the explosion, were all lined up with their backs to the explosion site as a protective measure to help avoid eye damage from the super bright blast, but wearing no other protective gear, mind you. Grace recorded one lieutenant saying, quote, The atmosphere throughout the ship was electric, and it was difficult to control the impulse to turn around and cast nervous glances at the island, unquote. The firing sequence had begun, but it was still a time-consuming process, and a few more minutes passed before the atomic weapon inside Plym was actually detonated, just before 9.30, leaving a crater in the seabed 6 metres deep and 300 metres across. I note that various sources can have different times recorded for the explosion, and this may have to do with the varying time zones the different groups were operating on. For example, the British Royal Navy Task Force operated on Greenwich Mean Time plus 9.30, or Item King Time, whatever that is, while the Australian local RAAF worked on H Time, Greenwich Mean Time plus 800 hours, and so on. It was a ridiculous situation, given the real risk of a dangerous confusion arising. But there you are, working together, but not really keen to work together, it seems. Grace noted the explosion would have created a fireball that was hotter than the core of the sun in those fractions of a second after detonation. The high-speed cameras apparently captured the fireball bursting through the hull of the plim at 23 millionths of a second after the explosion. The ship disappeared entirely a few frames later. The fireball had expanded by 0.6 of a second to a width of one-third of a mile across, before contracting again, with the massive shockwave continuing to spread outwards across the water and the islands. The resulting water column reached 1,800 feet high within a second, and the expected mushroom cloud then began to form. A tsunami-type wave emanated from the explosion site also. Grace also notes the recollections of one man who, disturbingly, had been sheltering in a rather smaller boat, much closer to the explosion zone than others by the sounds of it, saying, quote, The signal came over the radio to prepare for countdown, and a black heavy canvas top on was pulled over the boat, so we were now in darkness. We all then draped jungle green towels over our heads, and I pressed my hands harder into my eyes. 
then realized I could see the bones in my hands. It seemed that the light was passing through the tarpaulin and towel for about ten or twelve seconds. There seemed to be two surges and two detonations, with a continued rumbling and boiling sensation. My body seemed first to be compressed and then billowing like a balloon. When the all-clear came, we removed our hands from our eyes and towels from our heads, and sunlight appeared to be coming through holes in our tarpaulin. The tarpaulin was removed and I saw the cloud rising at speed." Unquote. Grace notes this man had been a fit thirty-year-old at the time, but soon developed a chest infection and a rash on his back that never went away, and later developed cataracts, all of which he suspected of being related to this test. Others recorded seeing, after their ten-second embargo before turning round, quote, an intense flash visible all around the horizon. We turned to look. The sight before our eyes was terrifying, a great greyish-black cloud being hurled thousands of feet into the air and increasing in size with astonishing rapidity, unquote. The scientists in the bunker on H1 emerged just three seconds after the blast and began operating manual recording equipment, documenting the development of the rising cloud. They appear to have been hit after 30 seconds by a blast wave, which shook the command centre and created a local dust storm across the island, obscuring much of the photographic equipment. Soon afterwards, radioactive rain began falling from the mushroom cloud over Trimawil and several other of the islands. Scrub fires were ignited across the archipelago and burned for some time, adding to the smoke and haze. The beach sands were blackened and sand dunes around were levelled. The two surges or explosions that were noted by many who witnessed the explosions seemed confusing, but the phenomena was explained by observers hearing the first direct sound wave and then a moment later a reflection or sort of echo of the sound wave bouncing back from the layer of air two miles up. Commander of the HMAS Hawkesbury reported, quote, In order that the ship's company would have the opportunity to witness Britain's first atomic explosion, lower deck was cleared at 9.25 IK. Eight minutes later, there was a brilliant orange flash, followed by a boiling cloud of smoke, dust and water, shooting up into the sky with dramatic speed. The typical mushroom was soon distorted in the high winds in the upper levels. The blast of the explosion was felt two minutes, 16 seconds later. Wiki records that a royal engineer observing the blast of, aboard uh, Zeebrugge later said of Plym, quote, All that was left of her were a few fist-sized pieces of metal that fell like rain, and the shape of the frigate scorched on the seabed, unquote. and that a gluey black substance washed up on the shore of Trimawil Island, the liquefied Plym remnants. The only Australian official observers were Professor Ernest Titterton, a fairly recent arrival from the UK, to take on the chair of nuclear physics at the Australian National University, and who had previously worked on the Manhattan Project. Also Professor Leslie Martin, Australia's Defence Scientific Advisor, and Mr Alan Butiment, Chief Scientist for the then Department of Supply. It had been a hard job to negotiate even these three observers. Had Britain had its way, the country hosting the test site, taking many of the risks, doing much of the physical preparation and bearing the costs, would have been entirely shut out of witnessing the outcome. Such was their desire to hold all data close. Initially, they had agreed to only one observer, 
but after continual begging and some support from the British Chief Superintendent of the HER, the High Explosives Research Body managing the tests, one William Penny, the two government scientists were also approved just weeks before D-Day. But they were reminded this would give them no access to the weapon itself, nor to information about design or efficiency data. Allies in war, perhaps, but apparently not BFFs enough to consider sharing. <laughs> After four minutes, the cloud reached the inversion layer and flattened out at around 10,000 feet. The mushroom shape began distorting and reshaped quite soon after the explosion by the conditions. The dust that did continue up, though, was disturbingly entering a wind direction layer that was carrying the debris towards the mainland. But, that minor concern aside, the test was immediately deemed a success. I guess because not all involved were blown to oblivion. <laughs> and the British government was immediately informed. Six minutes after the blast, the shockwave made it to Onslow, 120 miles away, shaking buildings and windows and startling its residents. Not everyone was delighted by the prospect of nuclear blasts, though. The author Robert Drew recounts in his book Montebello his childhood memory living in Perth when he phoned his mum one day to ask could he join his friends in going to the movies. His anxious mum advised him that an atomic bomb was exploded today and it just worried the blazers out of her. <laughs> she wanted him to come home immediately, though what she might have been able to do to protect him should some hellish chain reaction have been started by the bomb blast is a mystery. But generally, the residents of Onslow, at least, welcomed the test's success and celebrated as if it was New Year's Eve. <laughs> well, again, they'd survived, haven't they? Any private niggling anxieties could now be laid to rest. <laughs> Wiki states that, quote, the British bomb design was similar to that of the American Fat Man, the weapon dropped on Nagasaki during the war. But for reasons of safety and efficiency, the British design incorporated a levitated pit in which there was an air gap between the uranium tamper and the plutonium core. This gave the explosion time to build up momentum, similar in principle to a hammer hitting a nail, enabling less plutonium to be used, unquote. Yeah, sure, okay, yep. So I take it to mean it was a pretty powerful item, on the scale of things. It had a yield of approximately 25 kilotons. The Australian newspapers published the A-bomb cloud pictures the following day, and much was celebrated around the still secretive but successful atomic weapon tests on the Montebellos. The pride was even more pronounced in the British press, one writing, quote, Today Britain is Great Britain again. Britain's first atomic explosion did more than fill the Montebello sky with smoke. Overnight, it restored Britain to the status of a major power, unquote. Oh, well, ever thus, for some hawks, I guess, but a bit optimistic to think that one such scientific achievement might drag Britain out of her post-war malaise and restore her to a former colonial glories, perhaps. But the majority of data they would need to make the whole project helpful was being gathered on the Montebellos, and already they would have been feeling safer from unbridled Soviet threats, perhaps. So a good day, I guess. With the acceptance of a degree of risk by the governments involved in the testing, some men were expected to re-enter the contaminated areas to gather the readings and data needed. Acceptable exposure levels were posited, but reliable and correct information was not entirely known about the dangers of radiation, so risks for some were very high. 
But even so, Grace quotes Admiral Torles as saying, quote, some men would have to take some risks for the greater good, unquote. And while that may be so, one would hope they could do so willingly after knowing the potential risks and making their own decisions about their level of sacrifice. Most did not know and were asked to take part assuming that the environment and the exposures they were subject to were safe. Very soon after the explosion, in undertaking one of the riskiest tests, a crew was helicoptered in to take water samples as close to the detonation site as possible. Surely that must have been red hot right there. Others collected seawater samples at various more distant locations, and later crews in protective gear were sent back into the blast zone to recover samples and equipment from the various surrounding islands for measuring and testing. Those men on shore noted a gluey black substance all across the sand and surfaces. Again, this material would have been red-hot with radiation, as it turned out to be the liquefied remains of the disintegrated plim. The RAAF conducted various wind-finding sorties to confirm the direction the fallout travelled in the air, taking air samples all through the expected cloud zone. I think it's fair to say the Australians who were charged with collecting samples during the test and charged with ongoing monitoring after the British largely left were probably doing their work with very little knowledge of the risks involved. Initially, many were doing so with no safety equipment, coverings or working monitoring equipment to even measure exposure, and that can't be a wise thing, can it? The air personnel had no idea that they had been passing right through the radioactive clouds, but the samples collected would confirm they had been doing just that when they returned to the ground. Appallingly, RAAF men on the ground, collecting the air sampling canisters from the planes, were once again working with no safety clothing or equipment. One member of the ground crew reported how he removed the canisters from the aircraft. Quote, Dressed only in shorts and a hat, I would stand on a ladder underneath the wing of the Lincoln bomber, unbolt the canisters from the wings, and hand them down to another RAAF ground staff member. I did not wear any safety clothing, such as gloves, face masks, or what is referred to as a moon suit. Once removed, the filter canisters were placed in a military vehicle, which was commanded by British scientists, who were all dressed in fully protective clothing, unquote. This seems like pretty poor planning and behaviour by the British scientists, and it reeks of what should be good for the goose should be good for the gander, doesn't it? It doesn't reflect well on the British task force at all. As Grace put it, this led to many Australian servicemen believing they had been seen as expendable. So not good for morale, or for one's health either, I imagine. The same lack of care also meant that the planes themselves were now contaminated, and with no decontamination process undertaken, they were exposing wider ground crews to the contamination. Altogether, a very poor part of the exercise and highly criticised in the subsequent reports and commissions. These appalling deficits in hazard control were not addressed until after the subsequent mainland tests, such as the totem tests, which exposed more crews and RAAF personnel again. Some would go on to suffer injury and illnesses and cancers that may well have been triggered by this exposure. McClellan noted in his Royal Commission 1985 that, quote, collection of the air samples after the explosion was an RAAF responsibility carried out on behalf of the AERE, that's the United Kingdom's Atomic Energy Research Establishment. 
Often the crews did not wear film badges or dosimeters to monitor radiation dosage, and no equipment was carried in the aircraft to indicate when the aircraft had located and was in the cloud. They had no way of knowing if they were flying near or straight through contaminated air. These emissions were the result of a statement issued by the Hurricane Executive to the Australian authorities that, quote, the radioactive hazard to air crews in flying through the radioactive cloud is negligible and that there was no fear of the aircraft becoming contaminated, unquote. But that information given was not complete and the potential for contamination was much higher than they implied in that statement. Servicemen involved noted all the British scientists and technicians had the appropriate safety gear, including hazard suits and exposure measuring devices, while the Australians were wandering around in standard uniform in some cases handling the instruments that were collected from the reconnaissance planes with their bare hands. McClellan further reported, the cloud rose to about 1,800 feet after one second, and most of the cloud reached a maximum of 10,000 feet after about four minutes, where its ascent was subsequently stopped by a temperature inversion. A small portion of the cloud continued to rise to 11,600 feet, Local fallout began at one minute after firing, with most of it falling as contaminated rain, as well as solid particles from the crater and parts of HMS Plym. Most of this close-in fallout fell in the north and west of Ground Zero. Unquote. Despite one of the Australian observers stating that he saw no fish or animals killed by the blast, many other witnesses recalled seeing vast numbers of dead fish floating around the atolls and anchorages. Some were collected for testing, as were bird carcasses and other biological specimens. But the scientists were surprised to note, after extensive testing over the following days and weeks, that radiation fallout was detected in Port Hedland, in Townsville and Brisbane, indeed much further afield, being detectable on islands in the Pacific. The report sent to Britain advised, quote, Contamination over the greater part of Trimwell and the northern half of the lagoon is extensive and severe, unquote. They found the fallout much more widespread than predicted, leading them to conclude that a ship-borne explosion had distributed radioactive debris much more widely than an airborne explosion may have done. The spray from the resulting water column and the liquefied remains of the ship caused a great deal of highly radioactive contamination across the islands. This would have been horrifying news for the British. Grace notes, quote, from a civil defence point of view, the hurricane blast was a nightmare, unquote, and any port so affected would be virtually unsalvageable. It was also clear that the use of such a device as an offensive weapon would not allow the follow-up with troops, given that the amount of radiation left would sicken your own men. Still, overall the test was deemed a great success. They had built and successfully detonated Britain's first atomic bomb, and it was now a contender in the nuclear fight club. <laughs> the clean-up, such as it was, continued throughout October, with the authorities desperate to get it done before cyclone season approached. So it was a pretty rudimentary exercise, actually, and some of the tales about how they handled and disposed of the contaminated materials are hair-raising. Substantially radioactive rubbish was left behind on Trimmerwell and on the other islands, including grey metallic fallout from the explosion, coating the sands, along with other debris and associated equipment fragments. Some waste was loaded into drums and dropped into the sea, but it all seemed a little haphazard, as their deadline to leave approached. Most of the British had left the area by the end of October, 
but HMAS Hawkesbury continued to patrol the area until the 15th of January 1953. When they returned again the following year to do further monitoring, testing and to continue the clean-up, many areas were still found to be hot and a continuing hazard to life. Once again, the men involved were exposed to hazards greater than were safe, without necessarily knowing it, and some equipment had been returned to service before being entirely decontaminated. With the official reports given to the government, Churchill informed the House of Commons of the operation's conclusion on October 23rd, and only then did they become aware that the weapon was tested by exploding it inside the hold of the plim. Quote, Thousands of tonnes of water and of mud and rock from the sea bottom were thrown many thousands of feet into the air, and a high tidal wave was caused. The effects of the blast and radioactive contamination extended over a wide area. HMS Plym was vaporised, except for some red-hot fragments which were scattered over the islands and started fires in the dry vegetation." Unquote. Penny, the head of the British program, prepared several more communications in the following weeks to add further detail and to explain some of the more bizarre observations, such as the apparent double explosion sounds discussed earlier. And like the British and Australian Prime Ministers had done, he also reminded the public that it was all for a good cause. Quote, the energy and enthusiasm which have gone into the making of the new weapon stemmed from a sober hope that it would bring us nearer to the day when war is universally seen as unthinkable. Unquote. Ah, if only. Still, the British were pretty pleased with themselves. For about four weeks, <laughs> when they then discovered that the Americans had just detonated the world's first hydrogen bomb with a yield 400 times that of Operation Hurricane test weapon. Oh, terrifying. Hydrogen bombs work by nuclear fusion, though a small fission atom bomb within was used to trigger the massive new weapon. Grace wrote, quote, The news must have been deflating, making the Hurricane device look like a cracker by comparison. Although the UK did not officially make the decision to develop the hydrogen bomb for some time, it was inevitable. Britain could not go back to the children's table now it had just reclaimed its rightful place with the grown-ups. For poor old Penny, it was back to the drawing board. Unquote. Oh, funny. Except, you know, nuclear weapons, for God's sake. Grace records that the building of the bomb and Operation Hurricane Test had cost the British somewhere between the vast figure of 100 to 200 million pounds. A bargain, really, as it was a fraction of the cost of the Manhattan Project, apparently. Australia accounted for its financial contribution as being a very precise £201,662, which Grace records included the writing off of the army tents loaned to the Navy, which were then blown up on D-Day. <laughs> oh, whoopsie-doodle. In summing up, we must account too for the environmental and health costs that had not been acknowledged in all the congratulatory hype. Massive damage was done to the Montebello Islands and to the surrounding seas with lingering radioactivity and contamination, closing them to visitors for decades. Radioactive particle contamination drift drifted across the mainland, despite assurances that it would not happen, and the flora and fauna of the archipelago was devastated and took many decades to recover. Author Robert Drew, recounting the discovery of one serviceman undertaking a tour of duty on the islands in 1953, 
while assisting with the measurement and follow-up surveys that were occurring over a two-week period then. He claimed that on his day off, when sailing around one of the small islands in the area with a friend, they were forced to beach the boat to attend to a rudder problem. On approaching the beach, they found tens of thousands of dead turtles. The two 500-metre-wide beaches were totally covered, piled three to four deep in the sand, and of all sizes, from near hatchlings to giant aged turtles. He reported the smell there as, quote-unquote, very bad. <laughs> they took a large turtle carapace with them as a souvenir. They towed it behind the boat to clean it. Apparently when they got back to Fremantle it was found to be highly radioactive and it was thrown overboard into the sea. Churchill should have been informed that there was substantial inconvenience experienced by those poor animals due to his tests. Two more tests on the Montebellos would follow in 1956, exacerbating the long-term environmental consequences for the area. Known as Operation Mosaic, the British would this time test their new hydrogen bombs, though they were pretty evasive in describing them as such, when once again asking for permissions from Menzies. But you may not be surprised to hear, while the first test detonated on May 16 yielded around 15 kilotons and sent its mushroom cloud 23,000 feet into the atmosphere, where it once again carried over the mainland, despite all assurances. On June 19, the second test weapon yielded an estimate between 56 and 98 kilotons, sending a massive contamination cloud 45,000 feet into the air. Once again, the fallout was recorded right across the mainland, as far as Cloncurry in Queensland. The British, though, did helpfully put up new signs around the Montebello Islands they deemed contaminated after those mosaic tests. Danger! Radioactive! Keep out! And they fenced off the northern section of Trimawil Island. However, Grace contends that there was no clean-up of any kind undertaken after those tests. After offering up sites for more than 12 tests over one offshore and two mainland testing sites, and after providing substantial resources, including personnel and equipment to assist, the British weapons testing program in Australia drew to a close in 1963, and Australia gained nothing from the programs, not even any defence agreement that might see the UK come to our aid should we be threatened in any way. No weapons or any other kind of technical data was shared, and in the end, it seems even Anglophile Menzies was a little taken aback by how one-sided the relationship had been. Indeed, we were left with injury to our people and to our environments, and we had to fight over decades to get the British to even contribute to fund any further decontamination and rehabilitation of the sites used, let alone cover the costs that should have been entirely borne by them. Questions about the injury to servicemen and civilians resulting from the immediate and ongoing contamination produced by the tests, particularly at Maralinga, at last began gaining some attention in the 1970s. Various veterans' associations and lobby groups had gained momentum, but though several reports were released in the 70s, they pretty much failed to offer any helpful conclusions. By the mid-1980s, Bob Hawke's government instituted a royal commission into testing in Australia and I've provided links to the Commission's findings in the reference lists. 
While there were a number of disturbing issues raised about the tests on the Montebellos, the worst of the findings related to the later tests hosted on the mainland at Emufield and Maralinga, which directly contaminated a number of Indigenous people and station hands, resulting in injury, early death and ongoing health problems, as well as injury to the military personnel involved. Still, the authorities refused to take responsibility and getting the British government to pay for the neglected clean-ups and decontamination was like pulling teeth over many decades. Grace summed up that while the Royal Commissioner's conclusions did criticise both governments for their failures in planning and execution, they also suggested there was little evidence of dangerously high fallout and therefore, after all this time, could not link this as a cause to the illness and deaths of the veterans and the Aboriginal persons exposed, leaving those affected feeling massively disappointed. Regarding the Montebello Islands, they specifically found that they were, quote, not an appropriate place for atomic tests owing to the prevailing weather patterns and the limited opportunities for safe firing, unquote. The failure to provide air crews with the appropriate instruction, protective equipment and radiation monitoring devices and decontamination facilities was negligent and that those returning to the islands for the clean-ups were exposed to unacceptable risk in the performance of their duties. Conduct in the latter trials at the Montebellos also drew further opprobrium. A study of atomic veterans published in 2006 found their overall death rate was only slightly higher than the general population, but that cause of death from various cancers was much higher, 18% higher. However, they still did not slate the causes to the radiation exposure though many veterans believe they were sighted closer to the exposure zones than the official records place them on the day of the explosion, and would likely have had higher exposure than the official records suggest. So it's all still very contentious. Interestingly, while the studies generally felt unable to confirm provable injury to persons involved or exposed in the area, McClelland ruled that, quote, their exposure to radiation as participants in the trial program has increased the risk of cancer among nuclear veterans. Unquote. And he recommended reversing the burden of proof required by those seeking compensation, placing it instead with the Commonwealth. Many had tried and mostly failed to get any compensation for injury or widows' compensation for early deaths of their husbands in the past. As Grace commented, it's an irony that one particular planner's argument was not accepted when he maintained that Operation Hurricane was actually an operation of war. Had they made that distinction, all atomic veterans would have been entitled to pensions, as if they'd been bombed by an enemy, but apparently being poisoned by an ally did not offer any such compensation. The Royal Commission recommended extensive decontamination and rehabilitation of all the sites, at British cost, and also suggested compensating the traditional owners for the loss of access to their traditional lands. The British refused to pay, of course, finally con agreeing to contribute $45 million to the rehab estimated cost of $100 million in the early 1990s, only after an embarrassing article had been published and their poor behaviour became known worldwide. The clean-ups commenced in the late 1990s, but many are still unhappy with the outcomes, especially on the Maralinga site. The land still cannot be occupied for any length of time, and indeed, even the Montebello still have restrictions to guard the health of those visiting. After the frightful scare of the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962, there was greater international concern about just how close the world had come to a nuclear war, and pressure was exerted to control and reduce nuclear proliferation, starting with a partial test ban treaty in 1963, the same year that our tests came to an end. 
The Montebellos remained a prohibited area and occasional radiation surveys were undertaken over time. Some cleanup was attempted in the mid-1960s and the signs and fences were replaced at that time too. A token effort was again made in 1979. By the 1980s, the radioactivity had decayed to a point where it was deemed no longer hazardous to the casual visitor in many places across the archipelago, as long as they did not disturb the environment or stay too long. When a gas project was proposed on the nearby Barrow Island, which had since become a bit of an offshore ark for some endangered native animals, it was decided to eradicate any remaining cats and rats from the Montebellos, and in 2009, an endangered marsupials and other animals were transplanted there from Barrow. Funded by the Gas Consortium, a 16-year Montebello renewal project meant that conservationists and biologists regularly monitored and managed the site over that period. Today, the Montebello Islands are a conservation and marine park. Visitors, though, are advised not to spend more than an hour per day at the test sites, not to disturb the soils or remove any souvenirs from the site due to residual radioactivity. A surprising amount of the Operation Hurricane Relics can still be seen across the area, from the remains of the bunkers, metal from plane wings or rocket launchers, and other pieces of military structures and test debris that were not cleaned up. A monument on Alpha Island marks the 1956 test site. After doing these little dives into history, I often comment that I'm looking forward to visiting the site involved now that I know a little more about them. Rest assured this is not the case for the Montebellos. They certainly do look interesting in recent photos, and I'm told by someone who has been that the fish and the reefs around are spectacular, but the exposure risks put me right off. Plenty of other places to explore that have slightly less glow than the Montebellos, <laughs> so not for me, I'm afraid. Now, this episode, I want to recommend a podcast I have only just found fairly recently. It's an absolute gem, and I wonder how I could have missed it for so long. Called The Rest is History, and created by two brilliant and highly amusing British historians and writers, Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook, their podcast will entertain and enlighten you by interrogating the past and attempting to detangle the present. As always, I'll add a link on my pod recommendations list for you. I've been listening to their back catalogue and now regularly look forward to discovering what their next eclectic history topic will be. I love it. And by the way, if you have other pods that you love, I'd be interested to hear about them. I'm always on the lookout for something new. Email me your recommendations. I have no idea yet what I'm going to explore next episode. You can see that I'm struggling a bit with the motivation to do the work. <laughs> but rest assured, I've got a big list and I will turn my mind to choosing one very soon. I'm going to try to re-record the Mariah Island episode first, though, to make it more listenable. So check in for that next month if you had trouble listening to the original, and you might like to try again, hearing it at a more relaxed pace. Then it's onward and upward to something new. So remember to email me if you're waiting on a Blue Sky invitation, and I'll catch you all next time. Take care. Bye.